All right. This is... I might do this occasionally, you know. This is a little mini special, if you will. Um, Not the normal weeks, uh, you know, goings-on, etc. This... Tomorrow, I actually have off. Tomorrow is Martin Luther the King's birthday. Well, observed. At least in the United States. Uh, and that means I need to put something downstairs uh, to let the residents know that we are going to be closed as well as other folks. But, um, They're going to play a lot of the same old, same old Kumbaya, Martin Luther King stuff. Um, And as we know, people change. Just like, uh, you know, Detroit Red started off and became Malcolm X and eventually turned into Malik El-Hashbaz before he was gunned down and probably had another you know, maturation process. He started on one extreme, the other side of a coin, and Martin Luther King was on another one, but he started to meet and understand that he was on the extreme side or the opposite side of a coin where they kind of needed to be one, which is why I believe that they were both killed or assassinated around the same time. But uh, I Have a Dream is famous and, you know, for a good reason. But uh, if you have not read or heard of the one that he did while he was in jail and while uh, his fellow so-called Christians were admonishing him, then uh, I'm going to do my best to... uh, to read this one the best that I can. And this guy was an eloquent writer, so I'm going to fuck up some words here and there. Matter of fact, let me get my water and all that stuff together. Um, Usually I say, uh, you know, undivided attention is not required or necessary, but you may want to pay attention to this. We got a Fela Kuti in the back. Fela Kuti however we want to pronounce it in the background. So, uh, it's going to be a while. There's no breaks, no commercials, no nothing. Just that straight dope. So, my dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom do I pause and answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all the criticisms that came across my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of the day, and I would have no time for constructive work. But I feel that you are men of genuine good, goodwill, and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth. I want to try to answer your statement in what I 
hope will be patient and reasonable terms. I think I should indicate why I'm here in Birmingham, since you have been influenced by the view which argues against outsiders coming in. I have an honor of serving as president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an organization operating in every southern state, with headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. We have some 85 affiliated organizations across the South, and one of them is in Alabama is the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Frequently, we share staff, educational, and financial resources with our affiliates. Several months ago, the affiliate here in Birmingham asked us to call to engage in a nonviolent direct action program if such were deemed necessary. We readily consented, and when the hour came, we lived up to our promise. So I, along with several members of my staff, I am here because I was invited here. I am here because I have organizational ties here. But more basically, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century BC left their villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns. And just as the apostle Paul left his village of Taurus or Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my hometown, my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. You're going to hear a lot of these quotes, and especially from this, this literature right here. We are caught in an, in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow provincial, provincial outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. Mm. I am sure that none of you would want to rest content with the superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with the effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the Negro community with no alternative. In any nonviolent nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps: collection of the facts to determine whether injustice exists, negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. We have gone through all these steps in Birmingham. There can be no gainsaying the fact that racial injustice engulfs this community. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of brutality is widely known. 
Negroes have experienced grossly unjust treatment in the courts. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than any other city in the nation. These are the hard, brutal facts of the case. On the basis of these conditions, Negro leaders sought to negotiate with the city fathers, but the latter consistently refused to engage in good faith negotiations. Then last September came the opportunity to talk to the leaders of Birmingham Economic Community. In the course of the negotiations, certain promises were made by the merchants, for example, to remove the store's humiliating racial signs. On the basis of these promises, the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth and the leaders of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights agreed to a moratorium on all demonstrations. As the weeks and months went by, we realized that we were victims to a broken promise. A few signs, briefly removed, returned. The others remain. As in so many past experiences, our hopes have been blasted, and the shadow of deep disappointment settled upon us. We had no alternative except to prepare for direct action, whereby we would present our very bodies as a means of laying our case before the conscience of the local and national community. Mindful of the difficulties involved, we decided to undertake a process of self-purification. We began a series of workshops of nonviolence, and we repeatedly asked ourselves, Are you able to accept blows without retaliating? Are you able to endure the ordeal of jail? We decided to schedule our direct action program for the Easter season, realizing that except for Christmas, this is the main shopping period of the year. Knowing that the strong economic withdrawal program would be the byproduct of direct action, we felt that this would be the best time to bring pressure to bear on the merchants for the needed change. Then it occurred to us that Birmingham's mayoral election was coming up in March, and we speedily decided to postpone action until after the election, when we discovered that the commissioner of public safety, Eugene Bull Connor, or Bull Connor, had piled up enough votes to be in the runoff. We decided against to post. We decided again to postpone action until the day after the runoff, so that the demonstrations could not be used to cloud the issues. Like many others, we waited to see Mr. Connor defeated, and to this end, we endured postponement after postponement. Having aided in this community need. We felt that our direct action program could, no, could be delayed no longer. You may well ask, what direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? You are quite right for calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direction, direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront these issues. It seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. My citing the creation of tension as part of the work of nonviolent resistor may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension. But there is a type of construction, constructive, nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth.
Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths, an unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal. So we must see the need for nonviolent gladfies, gladfies or gladfies, to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. The purpose of our direct action program is to create a situation so crisis-packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. I therefore concur with you in your call for negotiation. Too long have our beloved Southland been bogged down in the tragic effort to live in monologue rather than dialogue. One of our basic points in your statement is that the action that I and my associates have taken in Birmingham is ultimately is, is untimely. Excuse me. Some have asked, why didn't you give the new city administration time to act? The only answer I can give to this query is that the new Birmingham administration must be prodded about as much as the outgoing one before it will act. We are sadly mistaken if we feel the election of Albert Butwell as mayor will bring the millennium to Birmingham. While well, Mr. Butwell is a much more gentle person than Mr. O'Connor, excuse me, Mr. Connor, they are both segregationists dedicated to the maintenance of status quo. I have hoped that Mr. Butwell will be reasonable enough to see the futility of massive resistance to desegregation, but he will not see this without pressure from devotees of civil rights. My friends, I must say to you that we are not made a single gain in civil rights without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. Lamentably, it is an historical fact that the privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see a moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture, but as Reinhold Nibur has reminded us, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. I said that in a bar. I think it was for the Kwanzaa stuff, but you know. We now, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily, voluntarily given to, by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was, air quote, well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I've heard the word, wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists, that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence, but we still creep horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, Wait, but when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even 
kill your black brothers and sisters when you have the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in the airtight cage of poverty and in the midst of the affluent society. When you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown has closed the colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little middle sky and see the beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and your mother are never given the respected title Mrs., when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro living in the constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with the inner fears and outer resentments when you are forever fighting the degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup runs over, or the cup of endurance runs over, and men are no long, longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in the public schools, at first glance it may seem rather paradoxical for us to consciously to break laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that we are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is put out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in the eternal law and natural law. Any law that uplifts Personality is just. Human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and a segregated a false sense of inferiority. 
Segregation, to use the terminology of the Jewish philosopher Martin Bubar, or Buber, substitutes an I-it relationship for the I-thou relationship and ends up relegating persons to the status of things. Hence, segregation is not only politically, economically, and sociologically unsound, it is morally wrong and sinful. Paul Tillich has said in, that sin is in separation. Is not segregation an existential expression of man's tragic separation? His awful estrangement, his terrible sinfulness. Thus it is that I can urge men to obey the 1954 decision of the Supreme Court, for it is morally right. And I can urge them to disobey segregation ordinances, for they are morally wrong. Let us consider a more concrete example of just and unjust laws. An unjust law is a code that a numerical or power majority group compels a minority group to obey, but does not make binding on itself. This is the difference made legal. By the same token, a just law is a code that the majority compels a minority to follow and that is willing to follow itself. Like taxes... Uh, anyway, this is the sameness made legal. Let me give another explanation. A law is unjust if it is inflicted on a minority that, as a result of being denied the right to vote, had no part in enacting or devising the law. Who can say that the legislature of Alabama, which set up the state segregation laws, was democratically elected? Throughout Alabama, all sorts of devious methods are used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters. All over the world. Um, and there are some countries or counties in which, even though Negroes constitute a majority of the population, not a single Negro is registered. Can any law enacted under such circumstances be considered democratically structured? Excuse me. Sometimes a law is just on its face and unjust in its application. For instance, I have been arrested on a charge of parading without a permit. Now, there's nothing wrong in having an ordinance which requires a permit for a parade, but such an ordinance becomes unjust when it is used to maintain segregation and to deny citizens the First Amendment privilege of peaceful assembly and protest. I hope you were able to see the distinction I am trying to point out. In no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law as would the rabid segregationists. That would lead to anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with the willingness to accept the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks the law with that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. For a of course, there is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evident sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the grounds that the higher moral law was at stake. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hunger, hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than submit to the certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. 
to a degree, academic freedom is a reality today because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. In our own nation, the Boston Tea Party represented a massive act of civil disobedience. We should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal. And everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. Even so, I am sure that had I lived in Germany at the time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers. If today I lived in the communist countries where certain principles dear to the Christian faith were suppressed, I would openly advocate disobeying that country's anti-religious laws. I must make the two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klan, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to, air quotes, order than the justice, who, pref who prefers negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to the positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly agrees, who says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. Who paternalistically believes he can set a timetable for another man's freedom. Who lives by the mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrated than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Let me say that one more time. I'm going to get a signifier up in this motherfucker. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice and that when they fail... In this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that the present tension in the South is a necessary phase of the transition from the obnoxious negative peace, in which Negro passively accepted his unjust plight, to a substantive and positive peace in which all men will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. Actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring it to the surface, the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out in the open, where it can be seen and dealt with, like a boil that can never be cured so long that it's covered up, but must be opened with all its ugliness to the natural medicines of air and light. Injustice must be exposed. With all the tension its exposure creates to the light of human consciousness and the air of natural opinion before it can be cured. In your statement, you assert that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. 
But is this a logical assertion? Isn't this a condemning isn't this like condemning a robbed man because his possessions of money precipitated the evil act of robbery? Isn't this like condemning Socrates because his unswerving commitment to truth and his philosophical inquiries precipitated the act by the misguided populace in which they made him drink Himalon? Isn't this like condemning Jesus because his unique God consciousness and never ceasing devotion to God's will precipitated the evil act of crucifixion? We must come to see that. As the federal courts have consistently affirmed, it is wrong to urge an individual to cease his efforts to gain his basic constitutional rights because the quest may precipitate violence. Society must protect the robbed and punish the robber. I had also hoped that the white moderate would reject the myth concerning in his relation to the struggle for freedom. I have just received a letter from a white brother in Texas. He writes, all Christians know that the colored people will receive equal rights eventually. But it is possible that, you're, that you are in too great a religious hurry. It, was, it has taken Christianity almost 2,000 years to accomplish what it has. The teachings of Christ take time to come to earth. Such an attitude stems from a tragic misconception of time, from the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time itself is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. More and more, I feel that people of ill will have used time much more effectively than that people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation not to merely for have hateful words and actions of the bad people, but the appalling silence for the good people. Human progress never rolls in its wheel of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always right to do right. Now is the time to make real the promise of democracy and to transform our pending national elegy into creation, uh, into a creative psalm of brotherhood. Now is the time to lift our national policy from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of human dignity. Sorry, I had to get some water, man. The words is breaking down. Um, where was I? You speak of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. At first, I was rather disappointed that fellow clergymen would see my nonviolent efforts as those of an extremist. I began thinking about the fact that I stand in the middle of two opposing forces in the Negro community. One is a force of complacency made up in parts of the Negro who, as a result of long years of oppression, are so drained of their self-respect and the sense of somebodyness that they have adjusted to segregation. And the part of a few middle-class Negroes who, because of a degree of academic and economic security 
and because in some some ways they profit by segregation, have become insensitive to the problems of the masses. The other force is one of bitterness and hatred, and has become perilously close to advocating violence. It is expressed in the various black nationalist groups that are springing up across the nation, the largest and best known by Elijah Muhammad's Muslim movement. Nourished by the Negro's frustration over the continued existence of racial discrimination, this movement is made up of people who have lost faith in America, faith in America, who have absolutely repudiated Christianity, and who have concluded that the white man is an incorrigible, incorrigible devil. I have tried to stand between these two forces, saying that we need to emulate neither the do-nothings or the complacent of the complacent, nor the hatred of, and despair of the black nationalists. For there is a more excellent way of love and nonviolent protest. I am grateful to God, through the influence of the Negro church, the way of nonviolence became an integral part of our struggle. If this philosophy had not emerged, by now many streets of the South would, I am convinced, be flowing with blood. I am further convinced that if our white brothers dismissed as rabble-rousers and outside agitators those of us who employ nonviolent direct action, and if they refuse to support our nonviolent efforts, millions of Negroes will, out of frustration and despair, seek solace and security in the black nationalist ideologies, a development that would inevitably lead to the frightening racial nightmare. Oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. The yearning for freedom eventually manifests itself, and that is what happened to the American Negro. Something within, within has reminded him of his birthright of freedom, and something without has reminded him it can be gained. Consciously or unconsciously, he has been caught up by the zeitgeist, and with his black brothers of Africa and his brown and yellow brothers of Asia, South America, the Caribbean, the United States Negro is moving with the sense of great urgency towards the promised land of racial justice. If one recognizes this vital urges that has engulfed the Negro community, one should readily understand why public demonstrations are taking place. The Negro has many pent-up resistments and latent frustrations, and he must release them. So let us march. Let him make prayer pilgrimages to the city hall. Let him go on freedom rides and try to understand why he must do so. If his repressed emotions are not released in nonviolent ways, they will seek expression through violence. This is not a threat, but a fact of history. So I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent. Rather, I have tried to say that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled. into creative outlet and non-direct action. So I'm sitting there trying to watch the game on the iPad as well, so not bad. And now with this approach is being termed extremist. But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continue to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies. 
Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. So help me God. And John Bunyan, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free, even though he did all that to keep the the union. It wasn't about us, but whatever. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal except for we were three-fifths. Um, So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be the extremists for hate or for love? Will we be the extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? In the dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. I had hoped that the white moderate would see this need. Perhaps I was too optimistic. Perhaps I expected too much. I suppose I should have realized that few members of the oppressor race can understand the deep groans and the passionate yearnings of the oppressed race. And still fewer have the vision to see that injustice must be rooted out by strong, persistent, and determined action. I am thankful, however, that some of our white brothers of the South have grasped the meaning of this social revolution and committed themselves to it. They are still all too few in quantity, but they are big in quality. Some such as Ralph McGill, Lillian Smith, Harry and Golden, James McBride, Dabs, Ann Braden, and Sarah Patton Boyle have written about our struggle in eloquent and prophetic terms. Others have marched with us down nameless streets in the South. They have languished in filthy, roach-infested jails, suffering the abuse of brutality of the policemen who view them as dirty nigger lovers. Unlike so many of their moderate brothers and sisters, they have recognized the urgency of the moment and sensed the need for powerful action. Powerful action antidotes to combat the disease of segregation. Let me take a, a note of my other major disappointment. I have been so greatly disappointed with the white church and its leadership. Of course, there are some notable exceptions. I am now mindful of the fact that each of you have taken some significant stands on this issue. I commend you, Reverend Stallings, for your Christian stand on this past Sunday in welcoming Negroes to your, to your worship service on a non-segregated basis. 
I commend the Catholic leaders of the state for integrating Spring Hill College several years ago. But despite these notable exceptions, I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister with the gospel, of the gospel, who loves the church, who has nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings, and who remain true to it long as the cord of life shall strengthen. When I suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama a few years ago, I felt we would have been supported by the white church. I felt the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be amongst our strongest allies. Instead, some have been out been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthesizing security of glass windows. Excuse me, of glass stained windows. In spite of my shattered dreams, I came to Birmingham with the hope of the white religious leadership of this community would see its justice of our cause and with deep moral concern would serve as a channel group channel through which our just grievances could reach the power structure. I had hoped that each of you would gain, would understand, but again, I have been disappointed. All right, sorry, I had to switch it up. Get some, get some X-Clan up in here, y'all too young. I've heard numerous Southern religious leaders admonish their worshipers to comply with the desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right and that because the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities in the midst of the mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice. I have heard many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which makes a strange unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. I have tra traveled the length of the breadth of Alabama, Mississippi, and all other southern states. On sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings, I have looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward. I have beheld the impressive outlines of her massive religious education buildings. Over and over, I have found myself asking, what kind of people worship here? Who is their God? Where were their voices when the lips of Governor Barnett dripped with words of interposition and nullification? Where were they when Governor Wallace gave a clarion call for defiance and hatred? Where were their voices of support when bruised and weary Negro men and women decided to rise from the dark dungeons of complacency to the bright hills of creative protest. 
Yes, these questions are still in my mind. In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church. But be assured that my tears have been tears of love. Sorry, Alexis want to make me want to make me work. I'm like. Hold on, this ain't. Wow, they only got one song by X Clan? Come on. That's a conspiracy. So we're going to Brand Nubians. But be assured that my tears have no have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I'm in the rather unique position of being the son the grandson and the great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred the body through the social neglect and through the fear of being nonconformist. There was a time when the church was very powerful in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed in. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than men. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. Oh, they were too God intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. Who is Blavy Spitting Bars? By their effort and their example, they brought brought an end to such ancient evils as ooh, infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice of an uncertain sound. So often, it is the arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silence. And often, even vocal sanctions are things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity forfeit the loyalty of millions and be dismissed as an irreverent social club with no meaning for the 20th or the 21st century. Ah. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. Perhaps I have once again been too optimistic. Is organized religion too inextricably bound to the status quo to save our nation and the world? Perhaps I must turn my faith to the inner spiritual church, the church within the church, as the true ecclesia and the hope for the world. But again, I am thankful to God that some noble souls from the rank of the organized religion have broken loose from the paralyzing change of conformity and have joined us as active partners in the struggle for freedom. They have left their secure congregations and walked the streets of Albany, Georgia, with us. 
They have gone down the highways of the South on torturous rides of freedom. Yes, they have gone to jail with us. Some have been dismissed from their churches, have lost the support of their bishops and fellow ministers. But they have acted in the faith that right defeated is strong is stronger than evil triumphs. Their witness has been a spiritual salt that has preserved the true meaning of the gospel in these troubled times. They have carved a tunnel of hope through the dark mountain of disappointment. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even though the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham. Even if our motives are at present misunderstood, we will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. Abused and scorned, though we may be, our destiny is tied up in America's destiny. Before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before the pen of Jefferson etched the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence across the pages of history, we were here. For more than two centuries, our forefathers labored in this country without wages. They made cotton king. They built the homes of their masters while suffering gross injustice and shameful humiliation. And yet out of the bottomless vitality, they continued to thrive and develop. If the inexpressible cruelties of slavery could not stop us, the opposition we now face will surely fail. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands. Before closing, I feel impelled to mention one other point in your statement that troubled me profoundly. You warmly commended the Birmingham police force for keeping, air quotes, order and, air quotes, preventing violence. <clears throat> I doubt that you would have so warmly commended the police force if you had seen its dogs sinking their teeth into unarmed, nonviolent Negroes. I doubt that you would so quickly condemn the police if you were to observe their ugly and inhumane treatment of Negroes here in the city jail. If you were to watch them push and curse old Negro women and young Negro girls. If you were to see them slap and kick old Negro men and young boys. If you were to observe them as they did on two occasions, refuse to give us food because we wanted to sing our grace together. I cannot join you in your praise for the Birmingham Police Department. It is true that the police have exercised a degree of self-discipline in handling the demonstrators. In this sense, they have conducted themselves rather non-violently in public. But for what purpose? To preserve the evil system of segregation? Over the past few years, I have consistently preached that non-violent demands that, have, that the means we use must be pure as the ends we seek. I have tried to make clear that it is work that is wrong to use immoral means to gain to attain moral ends. But now I must affirm that it is just as wrong, or perhaps even more so, to use moral means to preserve immoral ends. Perhaps Mr. Connor and his policemen have been rather nonviolent in public, as was Chief Pritchard in Albany, Georgia. 
but they have used the moral means of nonviolence to maintain the immoral end of racial injustice. As T.S. Eliot has said, the last temptation and the greatest treason is to do the right deed for the wrong reason. I wish you had commended the Negro sit-inners sit and demonstrators of Birmingham for, the, for their sublime courage, their willingness to suffer, and their amazing discipline in the midst of great provocation. One day the South will recognize its real heroes. There will be the Jane Merediths and the noble sense of purpose that enables them to face jeering and hostile mobs and with the agonizing loneliness that characterizes the life of the pioneer. They will be old, oppressed, battered Negro women, symbolizing the 72-year-old symbolizing the 72-year-old woman in Montgomery, Alabama, who rose up with a sense of dignity, and with her, people decided not to ride segregated buses, and who responded with ungrammatical profundity to one who inquired about her weariness. My feet is tired, but my soul is at rest. There will be the young high school and college students, the young ministers of the gospel, and the host of their elders courageously and nonviolently sitting in at lunch counters and willing to go to jail for conscience sake. One day the South will know that when these disherited children of God sat down at lunch counters, they were in reality standing up for what is best in America's dream and for the most sacred values in our Judeo-Christian heritage, thereby bringing our nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in their formulation of the Constitution and Declaration of Independence. Never before have I written so such a long letter. Woo! I'm afraid it is much too long to take up your precious time. I can assure you that I would have been much it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from the comfortable desk. But what else can one do when he is alone in the narrow jail cell other than write long letters? Think long thoughts and pray long prayers. I have said if I have said anything in this letter that overstates the truth and indicates an unreasonable impatience. I beg you to forgive me. I have said, if I have said anything that understates the truth and indicates my having a patience that allows me to settle for anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. I hope this letter finds you strong in your faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet you not as an integratist or civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from the fear-drenched communities. And in some not-too-distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King Jr. And this was on April 16th, 1963.
So yeah, I only get an hour for this. I finally got to the end. It's like heads up. You only get a 60s for a segment. 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 Ooh. Tongue tied, y'all. But uh some of these things, man. Some of these things we've made great progress. And there's a lot that still bear fruit. I'm just saying. So I appreciate your tolerance with me and my stumbling through these. I'm pretty sure I left some grammatical errors there. But uh, we all will see the free at last, free at last, all that one, right? But your boy, he he went at these folks with shame. And that worked in the South. The white folks in the North, in Chicago, was a bit different. The shame didn't work. And there's some that shame won't work. And that's just how it goes. Anywho, if you have tomorrow off, hopefully you do something progressive. Not necessarily a march. Not necessarily listen to a speech. Fucking interact with somebody different, man. How about that? Anywho. It's been my pleasure. Your boy signing off. Omega Ram.